Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 322 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Wednesday morning, June 23rd, 2021. We are back again. I am back because I wasn't here on the last episode. I'm Sam Klein. I'm your host. I'm joined, as always, by Jason Evans and Donald Wine. Guys, I want to skip the the uh, longer-winded introductions because I want to get right to our guests today. Uh, as I'm sure Duke fans and, and sports fans around the country have, have heard about, perhaps in the last few days, the Supreme Court ruled uh, in a unanimous ruling that uh, some provisions of the NCAA's uh, business model, let's say, uh, are unconstitutional. And we, Donald may be a lawyer here, uh, but he is not. He is not specifically as as knowledgeable on on the particulars of this case as our guest is today. So I want to immediately turn to our guest, and, and we'll introduce him very quickly. Len Simon is a Duke alum. He graduated in 1973 from the law school at Duke. So so you know that he's a smart guy. And he got in touch with us. He has been uh, working in, in various aspects of um, of sports employment law and. And we thought that he'd be a great person to talk to about this issue and about name, image, and likeness sort of broadly. So Len Simon, thank you for joining us on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a regular listener and uh, quite honored to be with you. Absolutely. So can you just uh, tell us a little bit more about your experience working in sports law and, and sort of um, where you come by your expertise to be, uh, to be discussing the, the latest matters at the Supreme Court? Sure. Um, I, I graduated from law school a long time ago, so I've practiced law for 40-something years. I, oh, I have always tried to grab some sports-related matters along the way. I'm a litigator. I worked for a big law firm in Washington, D.C. They represented Major League Baseball. I was right in line with a bunch of other young guys demanding that I be allowed to work on some cases. I spent 10% of my time uh, defending the commissioner of baseball on various lawsuits. I moved to the West Coast and moved from a firm that represented large corporations to a firm that sued them. And once again, I said, let's get, get some sports work and uh, add it to the add it to our, our uh, case law caseload. And I've uh, sued the NFL. I have threatened to sue the NBA on behalf of all the leading agents in the NBA. We sued the NCAA over the restricted earnings coach rule back in the day. Um, and I've had a wide variety of cases relating to the world of sports. So if you look at it net net, I spend spend ten percent of my time on sports stuff, ninety percent of my time on other litigation. But in about two thousand one, two, three, I got worn out and decided to work less and teach some. And I decided to teach law, beginning at Duke, and taught one course in the spring. And I've taught one course in the spring almost every year since either at Duke, which is a ways away from San Diego, or at the University of San Diego, which is 15 minutes from my door. And I taught a complex civil litigation, which is what I earned my living on, uh, mostly for the first half of that 20-year period, and sports and the law for the second half. And if you teach sports and the law, you meet even more people in the business. You get hired to do more interesting projects. And I've continued to do more and more sports stuff to the point where now I'm semi-retired and I spend three quarters of my time on sports-related legal issues. And so, so on those topics, um, we've talked a lot on this show about 
how the changes to name, image, and likeness are going to affect college sports in general. Can you give us kind of the legal rundown of, um, of what the NCAA's policies looked like sort of prior to now and, and how they're going to have to change their policies going forward to align, not just with this Supreme Court ruling, um, but with other federal legislation that's, that's some, seems like it's always on the horizon. Yeah, well, name, image, and likeness, the NCAA has been uh, just uh, a purist, uh, almost have a religious belief that students should not earn a penny uh, related in any way to their fame or talent as a basketball player. So their notion is that Zion Williamson should have been able to spend one year at Duke or Christian Leitner spend four years at Duke and never profit in the broadest possible interpretation of profit from the fact that that either of those gentlemen happened to have some basketball talent. They should have gotten a, a full scholarship, you know, tuition, room, board, books, uh, whatever is provided to basketball players in terms of high-level training, uh, and that's it. Otherwise, the, the, their, their net worth should have increased by zero and their expendable income on campus, zero. And they've been purists about it. And People have brought suit. Jeremy Bloom brought suit a long time ago. It's kind of a semi-famous case about a guy who was a, a great skier and a, and a potentially great co- uh, basketball uh, football player. But there have been a series of cases, and the NCAA's answer has been no, no, no. And the court's answers early on were no, no, no. Um, in late 2019, there was kind of a push for uh, rethinking of this, maybe the 10th push in a row, but the biggest push. And Zion was on campus, and I read an article that pointed out how many social media followers he had, which was some ludicrous number before he set foot on campus, and a doubly ludicrous number when he started playing for the Blue Devils. And I thought, if you just let him monetize that, he makes the kind of money that should flow from his fame and his talent. It costs Duke nothing. It requires neither Coach K nor Kevin White to make any decisions about how much money he could make. And the market works perfectly. You know, if a female lacrosse player can make $500, more power to her. If Zion can make $350,000, more power to him. Nobody's starving. Uh, Everybody's being treated the way an art student or a music student or a film student is they make some money on the side. It ha- might happen to be a lot. And I wrote a piece in the San Francisco Chronicle suggesting just that, essentially. NIL works. Uh, salaries for college athletes is exceptionally complex and might or might not work. Let's install the NIL right now and see how it goes, and we can worry about the salaries later. And, and Len, th- this is Jason Evans. Um, uh, was it a result of that article? I know you played a role in... California crafting their name, image, and likeness legislation, which which was revolutionary at the time. Uh, I know that there are other states who've sort of jumped ahead of California in line, but but tell us a little bit about your role in in the California yeah, NIL. I, I wrote the article in ver- around Christmas of 2019, <clears throat> and in early 2020, 2020, less than 45 days later, California had a bill pending. And I thought, that's interesting. Somebody read my article. I asked a friend of mine who's active in politics to put me in touch with uh, Nancy Skinner, state senator, who proposed it. And um, she said, I've never seen your article. Uh, I got this idea from going to a Rotary Club meeting where an economist came and explained to us that 
college athletes should be paid for their name, image, and likeness and their salaries and whatever. And I thought about it and met with my staff and decided I liked the NIL point and I wasn't so sure about the others. And I proposed the bill and she's quite an honorable person. And I believe her that it just, she just came up with the idea listening to an economist who's a friend of mine, by the way, and we've worked together on cases, Andy Schwartz, he's kind of a leading uh, uh, writer and tweeter and whatever in this field. And uh, so she didn't steal the idea from me. She had a similar idea, <clears throat> but she immediately invited me to work with her on crafting the bill because she knew, although she had a bill, it was going to get edited and edited and fought over. So I, I did work with her staff several times. I testified in Sacramento in favor of the bill, answered questions from committee members. And I got a phone call at, uh, I don't know, eight or nine o'clock one evening from the head of the, the um state Senate budget committee saying he didn't like the bill and he had talked to Senator Skinner and asked her a lot of hard questions. And she said, call Len Simon, he can answer them. Had a nice long talk with, um, with the Senator who at the, at the end of it said, well, I just talked to Mike Garrett, uh, the athletic director at USC and he sees these things kind of differently than you. And I said, yeah, well, <laughs> that's how the world works. And, um, uh, he released the bill from the budget hold. The budget, the budget committee chair can hold the bill forever in California. So I got him to release the hold. So that's my, that's my claim to fame. Other than getting uh, getting Nancy Skinner and her staff to red pencil it in some places, which I thought made it both better and less likely to be successfully challenged in court. Did you ever confirm that? that your words had actually ended up in the bill in the first place and that it didn't happen to just be circumstance or just, just a, a coincidence? Well, of course, I didn't write words. I wrote, I wrote an op-ed piece. Um, so an op-ed piece, you can't translate an op-ed piece in, into a piece of legislation. It's kind of like taking a poem, you know, and turning it into a, a manual for turning on a, a computer. They don't, they don't match up. So uh, there's no way to confirm it. As I said, she's a very honorable person she's become sort of you know a friend and you know we've had coffee and lunch and stuff up in up in Berkeley and uh I like her I trust her I don't need to take the credit I take the credit for writing you know the first first article in sort of in that era uh of that type uh, about name image and likeness and I've written several since but the ones I write since are competing with dozens of other people on why they think name image and likeness should be adopted and what the NCAA should do. Now, I will take credit for another thing uh, in the same indirect way, Sam. Uh, once this got going, six months later, all of my articles said, keep it simple. The NCAA's adoption of name, image, and likeness should be ultra simple. Just let it rip and provide limitations on illegal recruiting through name, image, and likeness. Leave the students alone, restrict the schools and the boosters. Because everybody's concern is, you know, that back in the day, they would say the problem with college football is that some Cadillac dealer in Tuscaloosa is going to give a lot of money to a football player and he's going to come to Bama. And now they say the problem with NIL is that some booster in Tuscaloosa is going to create a phony name, image and likeness deal with a quarterback and he's going to come to Alabama. And the NCAA has been proposing ultra complicated rules for name, image and likeness. And as I said, lots of people in my business, people who teach sports and the law across the country, people who work in the field, 
have been commenting on what the right rules should be. And my approach has been simple, 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 deregulate. And um, there is a proposal now from two of the conferences. I think it's the ACC and another. There's so much news. Can't keep up with it. But their proposal essentially is let's go simple, 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 simple. And so if they do that, I'm taking credit again, semi semi credit <laughs> again. Len, this is Donald here, a fellow counselor uh, on the podcast. So I wanted for the people out there, because there's a, a question I think that was interesting. You brought up Jeremy Bloom, that case, you know, back, which right. doesn't seem that long ago, but it actually was a little bit, a little bit ago where you have guys who maybe had to give up endorsement money or, or were suspended because of money that they took and it affected their draft status, affected their dollars in the NFL or the NBA or some other sport. With this ruling that the Supreme Court just passed, for those laymans out there who, who may not be legally proficient, does this mean that those players, those athletes from back then can say, oh, now I have a case against the NCAA because what they did technically, according to the Supreme Court, at least some avenues of it, was unconstitutional? Well, those are some pretty old cases. I mean, we do have statutes of limitations and things like that. And I, I, think, I think that's one of the less likely um, less likely things to happen. Uh, I think much more recent athletes uh, may be in for some money. There, there were lawsuits filed regarding name, image, and likeness. Class actions were filed sort of in the wake of the O'Bannon and Alston cases. Again, around the same time, I was writing my first piece around the same time California was legislating, maybe two months, three months, four months after California's bill came in. So now we're in mid 2020, there were class action lawsuits filed on behalf of you know, all NCAA Division I athletes or whatever, uh, saying that they had been deprived of their name, image, and likeness money over the last four years, which I believe four years is the statute of limitations for antitrust claims. And now that case is alive and well and just got a lot more alive and more well. Uh, I think that case has legs and uh, I would say two things about it. If the NCAA made rational decisions in defending litigation, they would settle it as fast as they could. And part two is if the NCAA makes a rational decision in, in defending that litigation, I'll be surprised because they never have before. <laughs> uh, hey, Len. So I want to ask you uh, a little bit about, make this a little more Duke specific, because I, I believe uh, you've you've spoken to some of the folks in the administration at Duke about how to handle the changes that are coming. A am, am I correct about that? Uh, to some degree, I mean, I know I know Kevin White. I know and like Kevin White. Uh, I know Nina less, but I've met her and and am pleased with that. I've met Coach K. I don't. I wouldn't claim to know him at all. Uh, I have talked to people. Uh, I. I I forward all of the papers that I write on the subject to Kevin and Kevin usually says, thanks very much. Well-written. Uh, I don't really agree. Um, I should say I was on, on the athletic council. I don't know if you guys know what the athletic council is, but it's, it's an, or it includes alumni and faculty and staff and the athletic department getting together and um, discussing, you know, major issues, relating to sports at Duke. It's hard to get on. I spent years, uh, you know, trying to get the law school dean, which different deans in different eras to 
recommend me to the president to put me on it. And once I got on it, I served for nine years. I had to take a break in the middle because there were whatever uh, term limits, but I served for a long time and I got to know all the people and I was quite helpful. I think at having them see what was going on at the very beginning of the O'Bannon fight, just the beginning, not giving them advice, just saying, here's what's going on and here are your risks. And so I can get their attention, but uh, I think Kevin, you know, was basically a skeptic and still is a skeptic that this can work very smoothly and is nervous about it affecting what we now call Olympic sports and used to call minor sports. And, you know, sometimes you know and like a guy and have a great deal of respect for him and you don't, you don't agree. So uh, I don't think we see eye to eye, but we listen to one another. I have never spoken to Coach K about it, but I asked um, Kevin to get my my sort of longest and most complicated piece on it to Coach K. And he told me that Coach K had it in his hands and had read it. It was the last I heard about that. And uh, I do speak to Paul Hagen, who is a professor at the law school, uh, who also uh, teaches courses on sports and the law every year. And Paul and I are good friends and we bounce ideas off of one another about name, image, and likeness. Let's say it's three or four years from now. How do you think athletic departments are structured differently or, or how are teams structured differently to accommodate student athletes having all these additional you know, potential revenue streams for themselves? What what do athletic departments really need to change and what's, what is sort of inevitable for them that that people like Kevin White just just aren't you know aren't putting front and center yet. Well, uh, Sam, there's, there's two worlds that we have to talk about. Okay, world number one is name, image, and likeness comes in in full force, and world number two is that some version of, of salaries payable by the university are permitted. So let's let's start with world one, which is much simpler. I don't know that they have to do that much. They think that they have to uh, do a lot, but Seems to me, again, imagine Zion being on campus. Imagine Zion being allowed to have an agent, which I think would be necessary. And imagine the agent doing all the negotiating, all the tax withholding, all the things that need to be done if Zion was going to make, just to pull a number out of the air, $350,000 on the side during his freshman, his only year at Duke. What does Coach K have to do? Nothing. What does Kevin White have to do? Nothing. What does anybody on campus have to do? Nothing. And I don't know that it has that much effect on them. Maybe when you recruit people, you know, USC says, come to USC. It's the, you know, it's the home of entertainment. We'll get you twice as much name, image, and likeness money. I don't know, possibly. Um, And, you know, a a player thinking of going to a lesser school, uh, you know, to make a lesser school a big name is told, no, you're not going to be able to monetize your name, image, and likeness. So there's, there's, there's a recruiting argument that can be made going all kinds of ways. But I see the changes as being kind of small. So long as they let the agents come in and do all the, you know, make sure the students stay out of trouble. There is talk about needing to have people on campus who can help the students do it. And I don't know, I think when you start helping the students do it, you start getting a little bit pregnant and you start having problems such as Zion's making 350000 bucks. well, how much is the best female basketball player on campus making? And do you have a Title IX violation? And what I think what you want to say in that circumstance, if you're Duke, is we didn't do it. The market did it. It's not our baby, 
and it can't violate Title IX. But if you're hip deep in helping Zion monetize himself, and you're hip deep in helping the uh, captain of the women's team monetize herself, you start to get a little bit in Title IX territory. Now, that's a short answer to a long question, but just to give you the contrast, we'll go to plan B, right? Salaries. Uh, I mean, Jay Billis and I were debating this on, on email along with Kenny Denard and, and uh, a few other folks last night. And Jay thinks they've got to be allowed to have salaries. And I'm, I'm nervous, cautious, and think we need to go slow. If salaries are permitted, the athletic department's got a huge job to do because they have to come up with a salary scale as to what's a fair amount of pay for every athlete on campus from a cross-country runner uh, who plays, often places third, fifth, or tenth in meets to uh, you know the next Zion Williamson, the next college, the next uh, new quarterback, and they have to redo it every year. Zion graduates. Well, now you need a now you need a salary for whoever replaces him, so to speak. And you got to compare the men to the women, to the major sports, to the minor sports. And I think it's an I think it's a almost insuperable problem without a union or something like that, which is very hard to get. But you know, Jay's a smart man. You know, he's got the law degree. He's got the basketball chops. Um, and he, you know, if you had him on, he would say something very different, which is the students are entitled to salary, they earn it, and they ought to get it. And if it's hard, that you know, the world deals with some hard things, and we'll figure out a way around it. But my my sort of ultra practical response is, let the name, image, and likeness stuff rip for about five years, go through a bumpy first two years, get it smoothed out see what the market provides to everyone. And we're not just talking about Zion. I always try to, I say that and then I, then I do it. But when I testified in Sacramento, the woman who testified before me was a rower at Berkeley, former rower. She was so good, she had earned an Olympic gold medal after she graduated. She was a blue collar young lady from Stockton. Her family had no money. And she was there in a partial scholarship because crew doesn't get much in the way of scholarships. And she said, if I could have gotten $500, $1,000 of a sponsorship from the you know, East Bay Rowing Club in Oakland, it would have made a difference in terms of having you know, food on the table and getting along. And I think there's, there's just a whole continuum from people who could have earned 1000 or two to people who could have earned 5000 or ten to people who are superstars. And every one of them benefits from the opportunity to, to make side money, as they call it, while they're an athlete on campus. And I would love to see that happen and uh, smoothly and just see if that doesn't take some of the dirty money out of football and basketball because you have clean money and, uh, and straighten out some of the inequities and then try to decide if there's a way to pay the athletes and if we want to pay the athletes and how the heck we're going to manage it consistent with Title IX and fairness and all of that. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. I hope you explained how complicated it is by just scratching the surface on, on all the different facets of this that, that are going to have to be addressed, whether it's in the next month or in the next few years. So this has been Len Simon, Duke Law alum, uh, knowledgeable sports business attorney, and uh, an attorney who on this program 
said that the solution to the problem that we are talking about is less regulation, which means fewer attorneys. So, uh, so you know that his heart is in the right place. Well, about see ya. Can I add one thing that you can, sure, that you can please put in if you like? Um, if you read the Supreme Court opinion, it's very, very long. Um, and if you read the concurring opinion from Justice Kavanaugh, it's pretty long. And when you get through about 50 or 60 pages of material, you get to something that I found exceptionally entertaining, especially where I read it. At the end of the Kavanaugh's opinion, he essentially says, college sports is great. It is thrilling to be at places like Stores, Connecticut, or Durham, North Carolina to watch basketball. It is thrilling to be in Tuscaloosa or South Bend to watch football. It is thrilling to be in Eugene, Oregon to watch track and field. And literally, as I read that, I was in Eugene, Oregon, watching the Olympic trials in track and field. And I showed it to my track and field fan buddies, who, of course, none of whom have law degrees. And they were like, Eugene is in the Supreme Court. Oh, my God. But I thought Durham being in the Supreme Court was even better. But uh, there we go. And of course, after saying all that, Kavanaugh said, but they're in big trouble. That was, that was, <laughs> yeah. that was his concluding line. It's a wonderful sport. We all love it, but we got some big problems to solve. So uh, we do. We're on the way. Gentlemen, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. And, and, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading both, uh, both the opinion. And, me. <laughs> and, and uh, thank you for reading both the opinion and, and Kavanaugh's, uh, and Kavanaugh's uh, additional writings on it, because I know that, that at least Jason and I, and maybe Donald too, would not have read the whole thing. Well, um, I, 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 I skimmed I it and uh, I'm actually handling a very important case for a young soccer player named Olivia Moultrie. She's 15 and a half. She's a soccer prodigy and she's suing the Women's Soccer League to uh, get in. And it's a very rugged case. The league hates the fact that anybody would, would sue them. They're insulted that they're being sued, uh, sort of like the NCAA and uh, literally working day and night on it. So I, I've skimmed the whole opinion and there's plenty of time to go back and pour through all the words. I'm well, looking forward to that one. Len Simon, we, we uh, thank you again for, for being with us and uh, hope that you can join us again someday when we, when we know what's going to happen so that you can, uh, you can tell us that you were right or that you were wrong and Jay Billis was right. And either way, it, it's entertaining for us. So appreciate your time today. Thanks. Go, go Blue Devils. This episode of the Duke Basketball Roundup is sponsored by BetterHelp. Springtime is the season that's supposed to feel like a new beginning. We have better weather, and it feels like everyone gains a boost of energy. However, for many, leaving winter behind doesn't always mean that their mood lightens up with the extra sunlight. We all carry around stress, and that stress can build as more events get added to your calendar. That's certainly true, Donald. And with the amount of social gatherings increasing with the improving weather and more daylight, there's more pressure to be on when you're interacting with family, friends, coworkers, even strangers, even when stress has you a little bit down. And for some, getting advice from a therapist can help you tackle some of that stress without affecting you or the people you care about. That's what BetterHelp is all about. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be therapy that's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a professional, licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime you want. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, 
Give BetterHelp a try and find your social sweet spot. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Duke Roundup today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Duke Roundup. So thanks again to Len Simon for joining us. I feel like normally when we have guests, they're they're former players or their coaches uh, from Duke. But this is a this is another Duke alum, someone who speaks our language. I would say is is curious about a lot of the things that we're curious about and has really lived it. So it was very cool to hear from him. Jason, I'll go to you for a quick reaction. What do you think about Len Simon? Uh, some of his insight. I mean, this is someone who's been on the front lines of of these battles for quite some time. And I just found his insight is just, it's fascinating to hear from someone who, who's been doing it for a while about whether, where they think things are going. And, and I thought his final point, folks, I, I really hope everyone stayed with it and heard his last answer to Sam's last question about what the future brings and, and, and his comment that, you know, salaries, which a lot of people are now talking about, talking about collective bargaining. That's one of the big things that come at, came out after this, this Supreme Court decision, um, talking about collective bargaining and, and people saying that the players need you know, to work out salaries and other things like that. He's right. That's a really complicated thing. Name, image, and likeness is simple. And, and it looks like name, image, and likeness is what's going to happen first. And, and I think Len is absolutely right. Let's, let's see how that works and then move into the way, way more complicated realm of salaries. Yeah. And for me, it, a lot of this is complicated. And simple at the same time. And I think Len did a great job at kind of making everything simple, even the complicated. I mentioned that because when I brought up the, the issue about past cases, right? We, we've seen these kind of cases happen. They've gone to a point and they've stopped. And that this case, the O'Bannon case kind of went in the, uh, I'm sorry, the Austin case kind of went all the way through and got to the pinnacle because that's what they wanted. They wanted something that could shape the course of what the NCAA will be bound to do. And I think when it comes to legal cases like that, that's why I kind of asked about Jeremy Bloom and, you know, all these other cases or even instances where players literally were suspended because they did something like take a golf cart across campus because a friend gave them a ride or, you know, Reggie, you know, uh, uh, Richard Jefferson accepting NBA finals tickets from his best friend who just happened to be Bill Walton's son. Like, those sort of things where it seemed stupid for the NCAA to react in a way that they did, but the NCAA said, hold my beer, we can be stupid. So I, I like that because what this case is kind of telling everyone in simple terms is that those days are nearing its end where we don't have to hear about a lot of the stupid you know, NCAA you know, punishments because some kid took a pencil from his friend or some kid borrowed a video game or, or, or a computer and, and, you know, try to use it to do their classwork or they went out and got a job because they needed to pay, you know, pay for something to help out their family. Like those sort of things are going to be fewer and far between. And now the NCAA is forced to make a decision and really make it so that these athletes can do what's best for them and attract them. And really for colleges, they get to attract these kids to colleges by saying, hey, 
you will get an education, but also this is how you can further your career outside of the walls of this university. And if you talk to folks who work in compliance or who work in athletic departments, they'll tell you that they don't want to have to deal with every minor, you know, student got a free pizza or got a whatever, like these kinds of things just take up compliance people's times. And, and it, it doesn't, it's not clear that, that enforcing all these rules makes the games more pure. It doesn't make the, the student athletes better at, at athletics, or it doesn't make them better at learning. It doesn't, it doesn't throw off the incentives at all for them to be able to make some of this money. So why not just get rid of it? As you said, Donald, and as Len, as Len said, simplify, just simplify the thing because, it, because, because we're not, we're not, uh, ruling on anything that that's helping anybody in any way. I don't know if they continually do this, but back in the day, like, you know, even up to a few years ago, pre-pandemic, every month Duke sent out that magazine or every quarter Duke would send out that magazine to alums. And in it, they had a compliance section, which had a hypothetical of what, you know, what would this, what would the compliance issue be with this particular scenario? And it'd be some scenario about like, Hey, my neighbor, is a kid who is a recruit is going to play track and field or going to run track and field. And I, he comes over to my house for dinner, but I went to Duke and they would sit there and say, okay, well, that's, that's a violation because you were technically a booster. You have to report these dinners, how much they cost. And it was, I mean, simple things that the three of us that went, if we all went to school together, we could do whenever we wanted. And because the person just happened to be a potential athlete, in college, it became a violation. Those little things are what the NCAA was really micromanaging. And now we're going to have a situation where that's not going to happen anymore, where things like that can happen, where, you know, you and I can have a dinner or go to a movie or meet up at a park. And because you're an athlete, we can still do that. Like that's sort of where this is leading towards. It's going to take a while to get to that point, but we're getting closer. Jason, we've we've said a lot about the Supreme Court case, I think, already, but but uh, or at least a lot of folks sort of around the sports media have talked about it. But can you give us your uh, thoughts very quickly on on what the uh, outcome in the Alston case means this week uh, that, that Duke fans should know that we haven't already discussed yet? I, I will tell you this. I believe that the NCAA, as we have known it for our entire lives, my life being longer than both of yours, I believe that the NCAA essentially ended as, as an organization that, that we used to recognize on Monday with that 9-0 decision in the Alston case. Um, I, I cannot stress how significant that decision was, not because of what it specifically said, because all it specifically did was it, it, it allows colleges to provide, quote, education-related benefits, things like computers, uh, scholarships for graduate school, internships, and things like that. That's all it does. It doesn't st- talk about, you know, unlimited compensation and things like that. Um, uh, it's just connected to educating athletes. It's not, you know, we talked a lot about Zion Williamson on this podcast. It, it wouldn't really affect Zion Williamson very much at all. But what Brett Kavanaugh wrote in his concurring opinion uh, on the case is hugely significant. And, and the tone that he took, he, he invited further lawsuits. He invited athletes to collectively organize and collectively bargain. And he wrote just some scathing things about the NCAA and the way it conducts business. 
Um, I, I want to read, folks, just really quickly. Uh, it, this is from Kavanaugh's decision, and you may have heard it elsewhere, but it's worth repeating. He said the, the NCAA's argument is circular and doesn't make any sense. He said uh, the NCAA couches its arguments for not paying student athletes by saying that that their business model, uh, sorry, he, he said that their, their business model is flatly illegal and that in any other industry, it wouldn't work. And he essentially said, you can't say we don't pay the athletes because our model is built on not paying the athletes. He pointed out the absurdity of that from the NCAA. And, and I truly believe that, that this, this will, you know, we'll look back someday. I don't know whether it's three years, five years, I don't know whether it's 50 years, but we will look back and say that the NCAA was never the same after the Alston decision that came down on Monday. It, it's a huge deal, people, because of what it says about the fact that the NCAA cannot rely on antitrust provisions and, and the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is steering athletes toward getting more, more, more because he says they deserve it and no one is saying they don't. The one thing that you have to take from all this, the most important part of this decision, nine to zero unanimous decision. The Supreme Court cannot unanimously decide on lunch, but they decided unanimously that the NCAA is in the wrong and that what they were doing is unconstitutional. That says a lot. So we will wrap it there. Thanks again to Len Simon for joining us. Hopefully we get to speak with him again as, as things develop. But for Jason Evans and for Donald Wine, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 322 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Stay in touch with us dbrpodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and until next time which is going to be very soon duke band take us home